Chapter Thirteen of the Hemlock Avenue Mystery by Roman Doubleday. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. Miss Wolcott received Lyon with the same curiously cold and impersonal manner that had struck him before, but unless he deceived himself, it was a manner deliberately assumed this time to conceal some unwonted nervousness of which she was herself afraid. Her face was as sphinx-like as ever, but there was an unevenness of tension in her voice which betrayed emotion. "'I sent for you because something curious has happened,' she said abruptly, "'and I don't know anyone else to talk it over with. I received yesterday, by mail, this letter,' and she handed him a single sheet of notepaper on which was written in a bold hand, "'Remember, I said, living or dead.' Warren Fullerton. Lyon looked up at her in amaze. "'You received this yesterday?' "'Yes.' "'Are you familiar with Mr. Fullerton's handwriting?' "'Yes, it is his.' "'Can you be positive about that?' He thought she suppressed a shudder, but her voice was coldly calm as she answered, "'I do not think I can be deceived in it. I know it very well. May I see the envelope? She handed it to him silently. It corresponded with the paper, was addressed to her in the same bold, assured hand, and the postmark was particularly plain. It had been mailed the day it had been delivered. The note and envelope were both made of a thin, peculiar, grayish-green paper, oriental in appearance with a faint perfume about them that would have been dizzying if more pronounced. Lyon held the paper up to the light. It was watermarked, but so faintly that he had to study it carefully before he made out that the design was that of a coiled serpent with hooded head. As he moved the paper to bring out the outline, the coils seemed to change and move and melt into one another. Certainly it would have been a difficult paper to duplicate. "'Was Mr. Fullerton in the habit of using this paper?' "'Yes, it was made for him. He was given to fads like that. And another thing, though a trifle. You will notice he uses two green one-cent stamps instead of the red two. He always stamped the letters written on that paper with green stamps.' "'Does the message convey any special meaning to you?' Miss Wolcott waited a moment before replying, as though to gather her self-control into available form. "'I was at one time engaged to be married to Mr. Fullerton. I was very young and romantic and silly. I had not known him very long, and almost immediately I had to go east to spend three months with some friends.' While I was away, I wrote to Mr. Fullerton very silly letters. After I came back, something happened that made me change my mind and my feelings toward him. I broke the engagement and sent him back his letters and presents. He refused to be released or to release me. It was a very terrible time. He said that if ever I should marry anyone else, he would send my love letters to him to my husband and this whether he was alive or dead. "'Ah, that explains, you think, this phrase?' "'I am sure of it.' 
Did the threat make any special impression on you at the time? I mean, did it influence your actions at all? It made me determine never to think of marrying. Then, in answer to Lyon's look of surprise, she added impetuously, I would rather die than to have anyone read those letters. I simply could not think of it. No man's love could stand such a test. To know that his wife had said such silly, silly things to another man, it would be intolerable. But no gentleman would read them. She shrugged her shoulders lightly. In a play, no, but in real life, he would be very curious. Or, if he did not read them, he could still not forget them. He would have them in his mind, and would perhaps guess them worse than they were. Besides, you do not know Mr. Fullerton. He would have managed in some way to bring about what he wanted. I cannot guess how, but those letters would have been put where they must be read. He was not one to trip in his plans. Did you make any attempt to recover your letters? She did not answer at once, and glancing at her, Lyon saw that the agitation which she had been holding back seemed to have swept her for a moment beyond her own control. She was trembling so violently that she could not speak, and only the forcible pressure of her slender hands upon the arms of her chair gave her steadiness enough to hold her emotions in check. He turned to the light and busied himself for a minute in a critical examination of the letter. Then he came back to his question, for he was of no mind to let it pass unanswered. "'Did you ever try to recover the letters?' "'Once,' she said in a very low voice. "'And you failed?' "'Worse than failed.' She threw out her hand toward the note he still held. "'Did he not say living or dead? Mere death could not interfere when he had set his will upon revenge.' "'Then whoever wrote this note,' said Lyon thoughtfully, "'must have had knowledge of his purposes, as well as access to his private desk, and knowledge of his personal peculiarities in regard to stamps. "'Now, Miss Wolcott, you must help me. Who would be likely to know of your letters?' "'How can I tell? I have hardly seen him for four years until—' She broke off, leaving the sentence unfinished. Have you spoken of them yourself to anyone, any girlfriend? No, never. To your family? No, I have lived alone with my grandfather since I was fifteen. You know him, I love him, but he is no confidant for a young girl. I have always been much alone. Then, so far as you know, no one could have learned from you of those letters? No one. Not Arthur Lawrence, for instance? She started and looked as though he had presented a new idea. I never spoke of them, she said slowly. Did he know of your engagement to Fullerton? He never referred to it, but it is probable that he had heard of it. Someone would have mentioned it, probably. I did not know Mr. Lawrence at that time. He had no reason then to know or to guess the importance which you placed upon the recovery of the letters? She looked distressed, but her glance was as searching as his own. 
Why do you ask that? What bearing has it on this letter? Perhaps none, but I was trying to narrow down the possible actors. If you, on your part, have kept the knowledge of these letters to yourself inviolately, then the information about them must have been given out by Fullerton, if at all. Do you know anyone to whom he would be likely to confide such a matter? Any confidant or chum? She shook her head helplessly. I know nothing of his friends. My impression is that he had very few. He was a strange, solitary, secret man. And yet it must be clear that either he wrote this himself, or it was written on his private paper, in his handwriting, by someone who had intimate knowledge of his affairs, not only of the fact that he had those letters of yours, but of the threat which he held over you in regard to them. Now, if he wrote it himself, why wasn't it mailed until yesterday? And who did mail it yesterday, anyhow? If someone was in his confidence and is trying to play upon your fears, we must find out who it is. May I take this letter with me? I don't want to ever see it again. And if you receive any other letters or anything comes up in any way bearing on this, will you let me know at once? I am going to try to find out about his office help, and I will leave this letter open to the sunlight for a day. If it was written yesterday, the ink will show a change by tomorrow. If written a week ago, it probably will not. As soon as I learn anything that will interest you, I will let you know. But as he was departing, she detained him, some unspoken anxiety, visibly struggling with her habit of reserve. You spoke, when you were here before, of the possibility of my being called as a witness. If that should happen, would I have to tell about this? I do not see how it could come up unless they could connect Lawrence with it in some way. Of course, if they were trying to establish motive, some reason for Lawrence's quarrel with Fullerton, it might seem to have a bearing. But you never discussed Fullerton with Lawrence. No, she said, but her look was still troubled. If you are questioned, he said quietly, you will not have to testify except so far as you have positive knowledge. You will not have to give your thoughts or theories or guesses. I see, she murmured, dropping her strange guarded eyes. With that he left her. It was too late to take any active steps in the way of investigation that night, so he turned back toward his room, but his habit of keeping on his feet while thinking sent him on a long tramp before he finally turned in at his door. He fancied that he was going over the new elements which Miss Wolcott's confidence had thrown into the problem in his mind, but before he knew it he was making a comparison of the characters of Miss Wolcott and Kitty Tainter. Of course it was natural to think of Kitty. She was the only girl he knew in this place, and the only one he had had a chance to talk to for a long time, and she was so funny with her transparent theatrical make-believes, and so engaging with her girlish petulances and revolts. She was like an April day, a dash of cold rain in your face, a ray of sunshine dancing freakishly around the edges of things, 
and a white bud curled up close under the wet green leaves to call out the sudden rush of forgiving tenderness which you give only to what is near and dear and simple and your own miss wolcott was rather a brooding tropical day still with the stillness of motionless heat silent with the silence of fierce noontide low-lying thunderclouds belonged to her and the passionate stroke of the lightning and the deluging tumult of the tempest and the swift falling darkness hiding the hushed passion of life how had lawrence ever dared to love her but lawrence was a master of men in his own way there was an exuberant power about him which would joy in conquest his nature was sunny where hers was veiled but his careless light-heartedness masked a will as unyielding a nature as passionately strong as her own lawrence now would never see the dear funny charms of kitty and with a cheerful sense that after all things adjusted themselves very well in this rudderless world lyon swung back in his walk at the door olden met him well 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 you're late he said testily what have you been doing today oh all sorts of things i don't care about that what have you been doing about the lawrence case i don't know that i have been doing anything literally he didn't know whether he had or not and he didn't care to share his half-formed suspicions i have to take things as they come you know haven't you seen lawrence today no nor his lawyer howell no olden tapped with his fingers impatiently on the table for as before he had led his guest into the dining-room the only really habitable room in this strange bachelor's hall where have you been this evening calling on a young lady olden looked up sharply miss kitty no then with a half mischievous desire to play up to the other's hungry interest in the case he added a young lady lawrence knows and admires miss wolcott the bait drew even better than he expected olden leaned forward with his arms on the table and his chin on his crossed arms and lyon felt the blaze of interest behind the goggles the air between them tingled with it as with an electric discharge lawrence admires her does he he said with a curious deliberation particularly i think quite particularly how do you know i merely guessed it from a look i saw on his face once do people generally guess it i rather think not gossip hasn't mentioned it and does she believe in him well that is a point i didn't bring into the conversation this is only the second time i have seen her i didn't mean believe in his innocence i meant believe in him in his interest in her lyon laughed the man's persistent interest in lawrence's affairs was curious really i didn't ask her that either but i fancy lawrence is a man to make himself understood in that direction when he wants to 
"'You mean he makes love to every pretty woman he knows?' "'Oh, no, not so bad as that. Lawrence is a gentleman. Still, he is partly Irish. There is an old Irish jingle I used to know about the slow-creeping Saxon and the amorous Celt. That's the idea.' Irish eyes make love of themselves whenever their owner is too busy about something else to keep a tight rein on them. Lyon had talked jestingly, partly with the idea of erasing the memory of a remark which he began to think had been somewhat less than discreet. He was not prepared for the effects of his words. Olden sprang to his feet and struck the table with his clenched hand. "'Them damn Irish eyes!' he cried. Damn the man who thinks he has the right to make love to any woman who is tender-hearted enough to listen. Damn the man who thinks that as long as a woman will take his easy lies for truth, he has a right to lie. With all my heart. Though, for that matter, he is pretty apt to damn himself without any help from us. But Lawrence isn't that kind of a man. Olden had dropped back in his chair and his momentary outburst had given place to a sullen gloom that Lyon guessed had more relation to his own thoughts and to the story he had told so impersonally the other evening than it had to their present conversation. There was something pathetic in the mood he showed, a strong man bound into helplessness by the Lilliputian cords of emotion. When a young man had to have it out with his own heart, it was a fair and square fight, with no odds. But at Olden's age, the thing was not decent to look upon. It was like seeing some old tennis champion going down before play that was only healthy exercise for the youngster in the game. He jumped to his feet. "'Come, I'm going to bed. Good night, Mr. Olden.' "'Good night,' said Olden absently. Then he looked up with an obvious effort to be civil. "'Don't think that I have anything against your friend Lawrence or his Irish eyes,' he said lightly. "'I hope with all my heart that he may be set free, with all my heart.' "'So do I. Good night.' Up in his own room, Lyon's first act was to walk to the window and look across the white expanse of snow to Kitty's windows. The cheerful light answered him with something of the subtle mischief of Kitty's own solemn air. As he looked, all the lights went out. Miss Elliot's school was wrapped in innocent slumber. Lyon blew a kiss across the night and then pulled down his own curtain. He opened Fullerton's strange epistle and studied it again, but the cryptic message remained as cryptic as ever. Pulling out a number of old letters from his own writing case, he compared them with Fullerton's until he found one which corresponded closely in the blackness of its ink with Fullerton's. This he laid aside as a standard of comparison. Then he opened the new letter to the air, leaving it where the sun should strike it when it came into the room in the morning. The first point to determine was whether the letter had actually been written by Fullerton before his death, or whether someone still living was carrying out the dead man's sinister wishes. End of chapter 13